According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians chapter 1. We're not going to start Philippians chapter 1 this morning, but I'm going to use it as a launching point to explain what this series is about. I'm giving a short series as an introduction to Philippians. It'll serve as the introduction to everything. Philippians, uh, Colossians, Ephesians, and uh, even Philemon, if I choose to uh, insert Philemon in there uh, in in tandem with uh, Colossians. So um, in any event, we're about to get started on the prison epistles, and so I want to give a prison epistle preview. That's a P-E-P, if you like acronyms. Prison epistle preview, or prison epistle prologue. Uh, Either way, it's P-E-P, and these are going to be my pep talks. Uh, the pep talks that will introduce the uh, the book of Philippians. As it says here, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. And it's a great introduction, and it's a, it's a really it's a thumbnail sketch of what a local church is. A local church is a body of saints, the redeemed at a location, in this case Philippi, in our case Austin Bible Church. And it's all the saints, including the overseers and the deacons, the two offices for every local church, the office of overseer and the office of deacon. And so uh, it's a nice introduction to the epistle and a nice introduction to ecclesiology, if you want to study the doctrine of the church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Always a remembrance. We're going to talk about the the uh, time that Paul came to Philippi and, and being thrown in jail and the events there with the Philippian jailer uh, and all that will be background to, uh, to the writing of this epistle. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is the one right there I just read, verse 6. It applies to us personally, individually, but it also applies to us corporately as a local assembly. He's addressing the local assembly at Philippi, and from the first day they were established, uh, God's got His hand in it. God's working in that assembly, and He will keep working in that assembly. And we can say the same thing about Austin Bible Church. From the first day it was founded in uh, 1968, you know, we're approaching our 50th anniversary next year in, uh, in 2018. Should we be here so long? I don't want to be, but if we are, it'll be the 50th anniversary of Austin Bible Church in 2018. And, and Jesus Christ continues to walk in the midst of this lampstand. He continues to be at work. The Father continues to be at work. So we view these things corporately. We also view them individually, that um, we're a work in progress, right? From the moment of our salvation to the moment we're called home. And uh, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then verse 7, the last verse I'm going to read uh, in this chapter as we introduce, uh, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are all partakers of grace with me. And so we have the, the reference here to his imprisonment. And that's what we're going to focus on in this study. I'm giving you an introductory study on the prison epistles, background to Paul's imprisonments, plural. He had many imprisonments, and we want to be clear on those imprisonments. And so uh, we're going to take the time to work our way through the background on this and understand 
what is the traditional view, that is Rome, the traditional view of his Roman imprisonment and the authorship of the prison epistles there from 60 to 62 AD. Uh, And then other uh, positions, theories, views, ideas for the authorship of the prison epistles, including the Caesarean imprisonment, for example, the Ephesian imprisonment, for example, other imprisonments that are mentioned in Scripture that we want to be clear on as well. So, as we look at it, you'll notice it's not just his imprisonment in verse 7, in my imprisonment and, well, what else is there? Right? I mean, if you're in prison, then it's kind of game over, isn't it? I mean, aren't you out of the ministry? What are you talking about an and in addition to imprisonment? Well, in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. His ministry did not stop because he was in prison. The word of God is not in prison. That he continued to have opportunities to preach the gospel. He had opportunities to defend himself against the charges of the Judaizers, against the charges that were leveled against him. They weren't crimes in in any Roman sense, but they were uh, offenses to the Sanhedrin, to the religious leaders, as far as what he was preaching in in terms of preaching Christ crucified. So we're going to talk about that as well. The imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And by the time we we kind of get through the end of the study, we're going to realize that prison was the best thing that ever happened to Paul. That all the times he was in prison, there were doors that were open to him that he never would have had otherwise. That he gets to preach before the praetorian. That he gets to preach to members of Caesar's household. That there are doors and and ministry opportunities that that would not have been open to him under other circumstances than the circumstances God put him in. And so that's uh, what we want to talk about here starting this morning. I don't know how many lessons it's going to take. If we can knock it out in one or two, ha ha ha. If we can knock it out in five or six, however many it takes, right? If I'm still here doing this next New Year's Eve, then I think we probably have problems there. It shouldn't take that long, but we'll uh, we'll see what happens. How long it takes me to get off this first slide, actually, could be a while. Um, you might recall in the uh, life of Christ, we had the harmony of the Gospels. Well, this is similar except it's not so much a harmony, it's a disharmony. And we're going to try to harmonize the best we can. But we realize that different people harmonize in different ways, right? In the singing world and other ways, I mean, there's different ways you can harmonize. And uh, we're going to do what we can to harmonize the book of Acts, that's Luke, with Paul and all his epistles. And we've started this already because much of this came up and what really was the, the birth of this series in my thinking was Galatians, was what we saw in Galatians. And in some of the details that he wrote about, like the, the showdown with Peter, right? Paul and Peter had it out. And he opposed Peter, Peter to his face. Remember that in Galatians chapter 2? And it was kind of a shock to us because as you read through the book of Acts, that's not in there anywhere. Luke never wrote about that. It's not part of the narrative of the book of Acts. It's one of Luke's omissions but one of Paul's admissions. And so that's what uh, kind of formed the basis of this study. We're going to go through the book of Acts from, you know, basically chapter 9, I guess, with the call of Paul on the Damascus Road, and uh, go all the way through to chapter 28 to his imprisonment in Rome. And we're going to see everything in there that Luke tells us and what Luke doesn't tell us. Everything that he could have told us but chose not to. And, and, and it's hard to answer the why questions. Why did Luke not tell us? You know, well, uh, you got to ask the Holy Spirit that. The Holy Spirit was inspiring the book of, the book of Acts. Uh, but all of these omissions, they weren't uh, appropriate for the purpose of Acts. 
but they're necessary for us in the background of what we're studying in, in Paul's epistles. So we're going to go through and do this work. Luke's omissions and Paul's admissions, all right? And then uh, they're going to become my submissions as I submit to you that, that uh, they're important to know, that they're important to reconcile, that the whole context of the New Testament is woven together as a tapestry. It's not just 27 independent books that, that aren't connected to one another, that they are linked one with another. And uh, you should see what I mean as we, as we work on this. So um, the purpose of this study, it's going to be a harmonization of Acts and the Pauline epistles, um, focusing mainly on the prison epistles, but we'll get the earlier ones as well, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, Romans. Uh, those are all the pre-imprisonment or the, sometimes they're called pre-imprisonment, I'm going to stop using those terms, uh, but the early epistles, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, and Romans. Those six we can consider early, and then the uh, prison epistles as we have them: Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon. Those four, and then the pastoral epistles: First and Second Timothy and Titus. All right, and so we're going to take that. I don't count Hebrews as a Pauline book, and we'll leave that out. So a harmonization of Acts and the Pauline epistles with noted and repeated information gleaned from statements made by Paul, but completely unrevealed by Luke. You know, the statement about going away to Arabia and coming back three years later, that was never in the book of Acts, but Paul spoke of it. So we'll see a whole list of these, and there's more. I mean, I, I've tried to number them and renumber them and work them out, and, and I got over a dozen and approached 20, <clears throat> so started to combine a bunch of them. Number nine all by itself contains <clears throat> about seven items, all packed within the uh, the third missionary journey. And so we'll see uh, by the time we finish how many we totally list out as far as uh, omissions by, uh, by Luke. Now these statements come from Paul's epistles, and that's to be expected. So between Romans and, and Philemon, we're going to have a lot of those statements and we're going to find. But we also find them, interestingly enough, within the book of Acts. And, and because Luke records verbatim many of the speeches Paul makes, right? And, and so Paul will make a, a speech, Paul will say something, and Luke will write it down. And so it's recorded in the book of Acts, but it's coming from the mouth of Paul. And those are the most extraordinary things because, especially when you look at uh, chapters like chapter 19 and chapter 20, because in chapter 19, Luke writes about what Paul does, and then in chapter 20, Paul describes what he did, right? Because Paul comes through and he's having kind of a reunion with the elders of Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem. And he tells them, um, he says, uh, you know, I was with you for three, three years, night and day, preaching the word of God. And he gives them a narrative of what it was like. And there's details in that discussion that weren't written down in the, the chapter before, that weren't written down in chapter 19. And so Luke omitted those details in chapter 19 and he only was forced to include them in chapter 20 when they were coming out of the mouth of Paul and, and Luke was recording what Paul wrote down. So does that make sense? So uh, all, the, all of the Pauline statements include everything that he wrote plus the things that he said that Luke wrote down in the book of Acts. Are we clear on that? All right. I, I know it's a new year and you're up late and we're working hard this morning. I don't want to blow your mind even more. But um, we'll, we'll let it go at that. All right. 
The, the intra-act disharmonies are the most interesting because Luke records the Pauline statements having previously not recorded the prior narrative. And really the biggest issue is chapter 20, looking back to chapter 19 and realizing there's details Paul admits to in chapter 20 that we didn't have a hint of at all in, uh, in chapter 19. Other statements as well. How many times does Paul describe the Damascus Road event? Again and again and again and again, Paul describes the Damascus Road event. And because he has every, every trial before the Jews, before the Sanhedrin, before Festus, before Felix, every time, before Agrippa, every time he gives the, the defense, he goes back and he restates what happened on that Damascus Road. And we find there's details in those verbal uh, descriptions that Paul gives that weren't included in chapter 9, that, that were omitted by Luke in chapter 9. So some of those details may, uh, may come up as well. All right, so let's look at Luke chapter 9. We're going to start on what we're going to be dealing with here in these upcoming classes. Acts chapter 9. Did I say Luke? Acts chapter 9. You knew what I meant. By the way, let's see. I forget which slide has. I have a, a slide, and we'll look at it after a while, that, that has all of the chapter titles for the book of Acts. And so it's useful to just memorize a chapter title and you can think your way through the narrative of uh, the book of Acts. But we'll pull that up here shortly. All right. Saul of Tarsus, his Damascus Road experience, uh, dated in one harmonization and one chronology is the summer of 35 AD. I have seen it in 34 AD. And there's even some that think it was in the fall of 33 AD that it was so quickly after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that it came uh, within the same calendar year, Jesus, of course, being crucified in, in uh, the spring. Um, I think 33 is drastically early for the events that happen in between, uh, but as it, be that as it may, uh, 35 is not bad to, to work with as a, as a working outline. And that's really what we have, is a working outline. When you're do, putting together a chronology in the book of Acts, you've got... Some, some dates that we have virtual certainty on based on secular records, right? Uh, the, the appointment of Festus uh, in Judea, the appointment of Gallios uh, as the, uh, in, in Corinth. We'll talk about some of those appointments where we have secular history to give us the calendar. Uh, and and the, the reign of Nero with the execution of Paul and Peter, uh, some of those dates are, are pretty locked in. I don't mind using the summer of 35 AD as, as a date, and, and here's why. I, th- I think um, we don't know how old Paul was. We don't have a clue how old Paul was. We have a little, well, we have clues. And, and we put those clues together to try to paint a picture. Because of the stoning of Stephen, he was, he was a- he approving. And he, he talks about in his own defense that he was a vote-casting member of the Sanhedrin. That he cast his vote against Christians when they were being put to death. And you can't be a voting member of the Sanhedrin unless you're 30 years of age. And so we can pinpoint that. At least, uh, to kind of give a minimum age. But then we're, we're left to wonder, well, how old was he when the Sanhedrin put Christ to death, <laughs> right? I mean, because he was certainly involved. He was certainly around. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He, uh, he, was, he was under instruction in those kind of Pharisee circles and, and so forth. <clears throat> and I think that the, the one little clue that I, I, I chew on and I have for years and years Paul uses the expression as to one untimely born. Are you familiar with that? In the, in the, 
when he, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about all the appearances that Jesus makes in the resurrection. And in and, and the very final resurrection appearance, he says, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me as well. And so Paul was the last uh, called apostle. He was the last uh, human to see the, the resurrected Christ, the last one eligible to be vested with the apostolic office. And, uh, but that phrase, untimely born, is um, <clears throat> something I've chewed on for a long, long time. And, I, and I'm curious <coughs> if, in fact, his birthday was such that he was a year too young to vote in, in 33 A.D. at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then in 34 A.D. is when he was vested as a, in the Sanhedrin. And then 35 A.D. he starts to vote against uh, Stephen. Because that, that Stephen vote, he comes back to it again and again and again. The episode with, with Stephen, the first martyr, you got the first deacons in chapter 6, the first martyr in chapter 7. It's not an accident, okay? Um, but uh, Paul continues to point back to Stephen and Stephen's martyrdom as, as, as such a, an impact in his life that uh, to me it's you know, unthinkable that, that he had any role in the crucifixion of Christ. He would have said something, right? He would have said something. So um, I, I take, uh, as I put my own calendar together um, at, uh, at this, I think it makes sense to me that, uh, that 34 AD would have been the first year he would have been eligible as a Sanhedrin member, and uh, then 35 AD is not a bad date. Give him a year of, uh, of zeal there in Jerusalem, and then uh, the permission to travel to foreign cities and uh, to engage in the, in the travel like that the following summer uh, makes a lot of sense. All right, in the narrative of Acts 9, Luke does not reveal Paul's departure for Arabia and his return to Damascus. And those are details that we glean out of Galatians chapter 1, but they're not recorded in Acts chapter 9. And so let's just read a few of these verses here in Acts 9. (coughs) Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And this was an early term for Christianity that uh, the Jews had assigned to it that uh, uh, because the Romans didn't know any better. The Romans thought that these were just a bunch of Jews that had a different theological opinion, right? They didn't realize that something entirely new was, was being created on this earth. Um, but the Jews, uh, or even perhaps many of them themselves, they called themselves the way, followers of Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life. And so they called themselves the way. Even groups today that use that kind of language, some problematic cult-like groups that use that language today for the way uh, international and things like that. Now, uh, so he's going to go to Damascus, he's going to bring him back arrested, going to bring him back to Jerusalem. Uh, there's tons of problems with this as far as Roman law is concerned, like uh, because he's crossing Roman boundaries, he's crossing provinces, there's going to be a governor, a Syrian governor in Damascus that may not take kindly to his citizens being, being absconded with and brought down to Jerusalem, things of that nature. But as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And remember, he has this name Saul, and he's going to be Saul throughout the first missionary journey until halfway through the first missionary journey when he uh, changes to Paul, and, and we're going to talk about that, that uh, transition. 
Why are you persecuting me? And you'll notice Saul here, Paul, does what we're all told not to do. He answers a question with a question. And he doesn't even answer the question. He says, who are you, Lord? And, and just in that question shows you what is on his mind and what he's been wrestling with and what perhaps he's been bothered by in his own thinking. Remember, he's grounded in the Old Testament. He's advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries. He has a, 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 a tremendous background in Old Testament truth. He has, he's engaged in Messianic studies all his life as a Pharisee and the child of Pharisees. Both of his parents were Pharisees. <clears throat> and so uh, this question of who are you, Lord, uh, almost fearfully waiting to get the answer, and he gets the answer he's most afraid of. And he gets the answer of what he was terrified of, and it's Jesus, the one that he's persecuting, the one that he's, he's uh, attacking. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. They get up and enter the city and will be told you what you must do. Now, we've gone through this a number of times, and I've made my uh, position on this very clear. Right? This is not the day that Saul of Tarsus receives eternal life. All right? I want to be clear on that. I'll talk about his conversion. Uh, perhaps some of the slides and artwork I stole will use the term conversion. All right? um, I believe this is when he crosses over from being an Old Testament believer to a New Testament believer. And uh, we've discussed that before. And if you have questions on that, uh, Wednesday night, I'd be glad to answer those questions that uh, it's from childhood that he's known the sacred scriptures. When he writes to Timothy, he talks about Timothy's childhood and knowing the sacred scriptures that lead to salvation. And, and I believe Saul, the little boy, Saul of Tarsus, was saved uh, growing up in his parents' home. And uh, that he was saved, but then he was steeped in legalism, steeped in religiosity, steeped in all of the, the darkness that's associated with, with legalism. And, and what he writes about in the book of Galatians. And so... In this process, he doesn't need to uh, believe to receive eternal life. He needs to repent. He needs to change his thinking as to who Jesus of Nazareth really is. And he needs to change his thinking as to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what happens here. And so you'll notice uh, the, the verb pistuo is not here. The uh, command is not given, believe on me and thou shalt be saved. Uh, he, he says, go into the city, it will be told you what you must do. It will be told you what you must do. So the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. All right. So this is what we're familiar with, and this is the narrative here in uh, the book of Acts. Um, we get down later on, so we have Ananias that's brought in and uh, who we were studying the other night related to the gift of, ex of uh, encouragement, related to uh, other gifts that we were discussing uh, in connection with, uh, with uh, Ananias, uh, the mercy that he showed, and uh, other uh, potential ministry pursuits. All right. <clears throat> so the Lord said to him, verse 11 now, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. Notice, <laughs> he is praying. Good activity for a believer to be doing. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And so the first thing Paul's going to see when his eyes are open, he's going to see Ananias 
the guy that he saw in his vision. Neat how that works, isn't it, right? Old Testament prophets worked on this basis. New Testament apostles worked on this basis. And we'll have some of those uh, additional stories uh, coming up in, in Paul's travels. All right. Uh, of course, Ananias is uh, <laughs> pretty fearful. Uh, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. <laughs> you know, are you sure, Lord? Right? You ever done that? I know we all have. It's, it's human. Uh, you begin to suspect what the will of God is, and then you uh, decide, well, uh, I don't think I like that. <laughs> or, well, uh, I think God made a mistake. Or maybe God wants to think about that some more. Maybe I can talk him out of it. <laughs> Whatever the case may be. You know, from Moses to Jonah to, to everybody. I mean, uh, you know, I've, practically I think everybody in the Bible except Jesus probably would. And even Jesus went through his battles and said, not my will, but thine be done. You know, I, I think it's just a facet of humanity that identifies the will of God and says, hmm, let me think about that. All right. I've heard from many about this man, Lord. And maybe you haven't heard what I've heard. But I've heard from many. I've heard from more than one or two. I've heard from many, and I'm pretty sure it's true because I've heard it from so many. And uh, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. How did he know that? <laughs> you know, the rumor mill is pretty impressive, and it's kind of curious to me how they learned all the way in Damascus what was happening and, and who had been dispatched to arrest them and those kind of things. I suspect that they were already prophets and teachers, Christian teachers in Damascus that had already been warned. All right. But the Lord said to him, go. And these verses I'm going to come back to again and again because it's a purpose statement for Paul's calling as an apostle. <clears throat> go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. And every one of us can write our names in this verse. Every one of us, we are chosen instruments of Jesus Christ in our day and age, in our generation. <clears throat> in Paul's case here, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And that's the order, by the way. Paul will normally go backwards. Paul will normally allow his patriotism to send him to the Jews first every town he arrives in and uh, causes trouble for himself. He should be going to the Gentiles first. <clears throat> and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I will show him what he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul's first assignment, once Ananias restores his sight, is he has to get a panorama of his future sufferings. So uh, Ananias is going to arrive, he's going to lay hands on him, he's going to get his physical eyes back, and then Paul must be shown what the rest of his life is going to be like on planet earth what all of his upcoming sufferings are going to be like on planet earth okay i will show him well when does that take place i believe it happened in arabia i believe it happened when he when he went out to arabia and he spent the three years out there and came back <clears throat> so ananias departed and entered the house and after laying hands on him said brother saul brother saul called him brother right there first word out of his mouth is brother he's not talking to an unbeliever telling me better believe in jesus and get saved brother saul the lord jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the holy spirit 
And Saul's going to know that as soon as his eyes are open because he's going to see the same guy he saw in the, in the vision from the Lord, right? I mean, this is better than anything that, uh, that, that Uverse ever does or some of these other companies. They send you a text message. They let you know uh, your technician is on the way. By the way, you're going to have, uh, you know, Fred or whoever. And they, they, in the text message, there's a picture of Fred. You go, oh, okay. So when the doorbell rings and you open the door and there's Fred and he looks like his picture, you go, okay, Fred, come on in or whoever. Okay. Well, similar concept to that. I think, uh, you know, they're ripping off the Bible here. This is what, this is what happened in, in Paul. Paul saw Ananias before he ever saw Ananias because the Lord showed him Ananias coming that he might re- regain his sight. And, uh, and there's Ananias doing it. All right. Uh, so hold your finger here. Let's look over at Galatians chapter 1. And this should be pretty easy because uh, we've seen this not that long ago. <clears throat> Galatians 1.11 I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, when he got saved, as an Old Testament believer, he he, he got saved looking forward to the coming of Messiah. Messiah is coming. Seed of the woman is coming. He didn't, he didn't, you know, nobody brought him through a, a Christian gospel saying, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, rose again on the third day and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's the gospel you and I got saved with. That's the gospel of the church age after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, nobody ever preached that to him. And no one ever took him through an evangelism class to teach him how to, how to give that gospel message, except for Jesus. Jesus is the one that taught him his, his how to evangelize class, okay? His uh, evangel class, the you can tell it. Jesus gave the first you can tell it uh, evangelism seminar. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, and the the verbs here are important, when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, that's his physical birth, and called me through his grace, that's his salvation, that's his spiritual birth, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that's the Damascus Road event. That's the, the transition from Old Testament to New Testament saint. This is when he is now placed in the body of Christ and the Son is revealed in him. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood other than, of course, Ananias who came to consult with him. <laughs> okay, But he did not immediately consult with flesh and blood nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then Three years later, and that includes the Arabia time and the Damascus time, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. All right, so those are the details that we have there that are recorded in Galatians. Some of Paul's admissions 
that are Luke's omissions, not recorded in the book of, uh, of Acts. We're going to put a lot of maps up, and I hope these are clear. <coughs> got hundreds of maps, and the hardest part is figuring out which map I want to use. Uh, these are the simplest. I think they're the cleanest. I think there's uh, uh, best for visibility and whatnot. But uh, so we have the route from Jerusalem to Damascus, northeast of Jerusalem. There, uh, you have kind of a hopefully a, a good sense for the eastern Mediterranean, where Paul spends so much of his early life. And uh, not my slide. If I wanted to, I could maybe get somebody to change that word "converted." Um, but converted from an Old Testament believer to a New Testament believer, and so I'm okay with the word converted uh, related to that on the road to Damascus. Luke also does not reveal uh, the basket case. The, uh, the event that's recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul had to escape from uh, Aretas uh, via a window basket. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, little detail here that Paul did not uh, describe to his Galatian readers, but he did describe to his Corinthian readers. He says, uh, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of Dam- uh, the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. And so there's another episode. There's another uh, event that's not recorded in anywhere in the book of Acts. All right, not recorded by Luke. Another one of Luke's omissions as a part of Paul's um, admissions. Here's a, a diagram as far as the Arabian Desert is concerned, and I don't know that Robert and I were talking about this last week. You know, did he just kind of tootle out 100 miles out into the into nowhere? You know, the, the Palmyra or one of those uh, oases, or or how far did he really go? And is it conceivable that he went to Sinai, for example? That he went down, I mean, that was, that's the wilderness of Arabia. Did he go to Sinai? Did he go to where the law was given? Where did he go to meet, uh, to meet the Lord? Did he go to the, the location of the burning bush or, or what have you? We, there's no way to know. Uh, it just says the wilderness of Arabia, and that's kind of a, that's a, a generic statement. I'm also going to uh, make use of a, um, yes... I'm going to make use of a tool in Logos, and I'm not sure how many times we'll look at this, but periodically in the coming classes. Uh, This is a timeline uh, of Paul from the Damascus Road to to Acts 28. So the Damascus Road to prison in Rome. And uh, the different events and the different uh, things, um, of course that's the big view. It does does, uh, zoom. And so uh, we'll be able to Actually, it precedes the Damascus Road. It goes to his uh, birth in, in Tarsus in Cilicia. We'll see that on the map as well. Uh, studies under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And uh, persecutor of the church, approving of Stephen stoning. That's key. Again, it haunts him and he writes about it. He talks about it. He preaches about it. That, that Acts 7 event weighed on him as uh, they laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And maybe that was his first vote. That was his uh, inaugural vote uh, on the uh, the Sanhedrin. Then, of course, the Damascus Road, that journey there, similar to uh, the other diagram. They use the term converted on the road to Damascus, and that's the traditional view 
That's typically, he was an unbeliever before, he's a believer now. And, and, and it's traditional, it's normal, everybody just assumes that. And part of what I want to do is break open our assumptions. And even if we, even if we still at the end of the process accept them, uh, we're going to accept them for reasons, not just for assumptions. And, uh, and that. The Arabian Desert, I like the fact that they've got the, uh, the uh, Arabian Desert diagram there. Back to Damascus again. That's on the timeline there. Paul goes to Arabia and then returns again to Damascus. Uh, preaches in Damascus. The Jews plot to kill him, but he escapes by being lowered through a, the wall in a basket. I think I would, I would swap those events out. I would, I would send him to Arabia, bring him back, and then he stays there preaching, and that's when he engenders the hostility. And then he has to escape in a basket, and that's the, his final departure from uh, Damascus before he goes to Jerusalem to meet Peter. So I would swap those two circles around in my diagram. Travels to Jerusalem is introduced to the apostles by Barnabas. We'll, we'll show that. We'll show the grace that Barnabas had to uh, introduce him. All right. So yeah, we'll, uh, we'll refer to that occasionally. All right, so that's example one. Example one is really three examples, but it's, uh, it's the, the admissions in Galatians and uh, your know, admissions centered on Damascus that, uh, that are not recorded by Luke. So Luke's omissions, Paul's admissions uh, dealing with Damascus, two, two events there. All right. Example two, the Saul of Tarsus ministry, the Saul of Tarsus ministry or what I call the Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus ministry. <laughs> All right? Uh, because he gets to go to his hometown. A prophet has no honor in his hometown, but he gets to go back to his hometown. And where he was born, he gets to go back, and he has a ministry there for some time. And uh, the, the full details on it aren't clear, but uh, Luke does record that it happened and uh, doesn't give the uh, specifics of what happened, namely his personal rapture and the thorn in the flesh. That, uh, that he writes about in 2 Corinthians. But it does happen there. All right. Uh, in my reading, let's pick up here. We're still in chapter 9. We're still in chapter 9, so we've got to speed up. Um, so uh, here's Ananias saying, Brother Saul, in verse 17, and uh, regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's when he's brought into the body of Christ. Every member of the body of Christ is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, got up, and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. Now, right there, before you get to your next pericope heading, that's where I put in Arabia. Because Jesus said, I must show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. He had to be shown all the rest of his life, the suffering, including the basket, including the window, including all these other things. Then he comes back from Arabia. And upon returning to Damascus for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately, upon coming back from Arabia, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. He got some tremendous doctrine in that seminary training, didn't he? And he's able now to take everything that he knew from an Old Testament perspective and relate it now to the fulfillment in Christ. And he's able powerfully to preach Christ. He's able to do things that we're going to see Apollos can't do. Apollos is a powerful preacher, but he's not yet on board with the, with the New Testament. Not yet on board with the, the fulfillment in Christ. 
And so it requires Priscilla and Aquila to get him adjusted in his doctrinal thinking. Well, Paul got that adjustment in Arabia. He got that adjustment not from men, from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was Paul's personal seminary uh, professor. And, uh, you know, Peter and all the other disciples, the, the 12, they traveled with Paul. I mean, I'm sorry, they traveled with Jesus, right? A three and a half year ministry following Jesus. The Apostle Paul got his own three years or who knows, maybe three and a half years traveling with Jesus or two and a half years rounded off to three, shall we say. All right. And um, Jesus uh, be, began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. I'm reading from Acts 9.20 saying he is the son of God. He is the son of God, identifying Jesus as the Christ. And those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who call on this name, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? <coughs> but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. You know, and, and you think about it, this, this ministry, you're, you're, you're talking to a bunch of people and trying to, that have believed in the coming Christ and to, to say, this that you put your faith in, he came. And, and putting that together, putting the name of Jesus together with the one that, on whom they had set their hope. All right. And then the Jews plotted to do away with him, and the plot became known. And um, there we have it. And there's the basket right there, lowering him down in the baskets. That's not a Luke omission. The basket's right there in verse, uh, verse 25 took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Well, I'm, just, I'm wrong. That's uh, not a Luke omission after all. There it is. All right. Now, he gets to Jerusalem in verse 26. He came to Jerusalem trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, <laughs> not believing that he was a disciple. And what's interesting is they don't get the heads up that Ananias got. You know, Ananias, the Lord came to Ananias and said, you know, go to the street called straight and, and find Saul there and lay your hands on him. And uh, these guys, they're, they're not given a briefing about Saul showing up, except I wonder about Barnabas. Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, how did Barnabas know all that? Right? Don't know. But clearly he does. And so, you know, when you think about all the apostles, Peter and James and all these other apostles, who has enough grace to, to bring Paul alongside and say, look, he's one of us now. I think, I think, you know, behind the apostle Paul, the greatest testimony of grace is Barnabas in the New Testament. And uh, so he was with them, moving freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And that's the last glimpse we see of uh, Paul here in this, uh, in this chapter. So uh, we have a uh, Tarsus ministry, a Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus ministry. Uh, Paul travels to Jerusalem, introduced to the apostles by Barnabas. And then... They take him to Caesarea, which is not on this map, but it's on the coast there, where he gets on a ship and sails up to Tarsus. And this is where he was born. This is where he was raised, although it's not clear 
How young was he when he left Tarsus to sit at the feet of Gamaliel? Um, probably 12, 14, that, that ballpark. If he was a bright kid, which we suspect he was, maybe 10 or 11, and then uh, accepted at the feet of Gamaliel at a certain point. Uh, but in any event, now he's back here. And uh, what happens while he's there? Well, what is Luke omits all the rest of this here. Uh, so he disappears in 930, and then we get a lot of stuff here dealing with Peter and Cornelius, and um, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, Peter has to defend why he was in a Gentile's house. <laughs> and uh, at the end of chapter 11, great things are happening, and, and the, the Jerusalem church gets information about great things happening in Antioch. And uh, they get this information, and so they decide to send Barnabas. And uh, let's see, verse 19, Acts 11, 19. Are you with me? All right, I realize this is not the normal kind of class, and so I might be losing you in all these Bible readings. All right, Acts eleven nineteen. So those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. And uh, so, you know, if you think about Acts chapter 7, and, and it was terrible. You know, Stephen died, all the other persecution was happening. You think about Saul ravaging the church, going into houses and putting them in prison. And so because of all that persecution, Christians were fleeing, scattering all over the place. But God worked that together for good. God used that. It was, it was brilliant on God's part because he's like a shotgun scattering of all these pellets everywhere. He's, he's taking the gospel to all these places. And uh, to, to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, you know, I don't know, Peter and that crowd, they weren't eager to go to all those places. They're still hanging out in Jerusalem, most of them. Now, some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, and this would include Barnabas. Barnabas was from Cyprus. And uh, this would include his people, his kinsmen, his uh, countrymen, fellow Cypriots. Um, They came to Antioch, and they began speaking to Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And so they don't limit the gospel to the Jewish people. They, They find Gentiles there, and they start preaching the gospel. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and large numbers who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and so what do they do? They send Barnabas off to Antioch. Now there's a couple of things there that I wonder about. Did they even care? You know, I mean, they're, like I say, Peter and most of them were sticking around in Jerusalem. But um, Barnabas may have had a heart for the Gentiles. He certainly uh, was on board with Paul's grace program. But he was also of, of, of Cyprian birth. And it may be, since that was a plant from some Cyprian believers, they thought he was most fitting, most uh, appropriate to go and, and, uh, and, and uh, participate in that ministry. And so he arrived and witnessed the, uh, the grace of God. He rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And it quickly becomes overwhelming. And when there's so much work to do and you can't do it all by yourself, what do you do? You get help. You go find a partner, a fellow worker to join in the task. And uh, notice where he doesn't go. 
He doesn't send word back to Jerusalem and see if, uh, you know, if Peter's bored yet and ready to start doing some work or if, if uh, James or any of these other guys are ready to go. He goes to uh, Tarsus and he fetches Paul. And we see this here. He left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with a church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And there's this tremendous narrative here. Now, it's a very brief story. I mean, from, from chapter 9 and verse 30 to chapter 11 and verse 25, Luke doesn't give us a clue as to anything that might have been happening in Tarsus. What was happening there in Tarsus? Was there a church there? Who's their pastor now that Paul's leaving? What else is going on? How many people got saved while he was there? So we have all these questions that, uh, that aren't exactly answered. We also have the thorn in the flesh event. <clears throat> the thorn in the flesh event. And again, this requires uh, some, some homework. It requires the, uh, the backdating of the message because when you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about it and he says that this happened 14 years ago. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And so his personal rapture experience, we, we, we want to try to plot the writing of 2 Corinthians on our, on our timeline and then back it up 14 years. And, um, and he describes this, caught up to paradise, heard inexpressible words. You know, you don't come back from heaven and write a book or sign a movie deal or make all this money in the Christian bookstores and on the radio programs and everything that's going on. There's been a slew of them in the last 10 years some of which have been recanted now, by the way. The little Pentecostal kid finally admitted his dad pressured him into, into a lot of that stuff. Um, anyway, someone that truly goes to heaven, you want to find out why, and why were you sent back, and why are you allowed to talk about it when Paul wasn't allowed to talk about it. No one's allowed to talk about it. They are inexpressible words, which humanity is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. Because guess what? He came back with a thorn. He came back damaged. He came back, uh, and, and this crowd today writing all their books, I want to know, well, what, what's your thorn? What's, uh, what are you afflicted with? What is God humbling you with? Because of the, Verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, an angelos, a messenger, an angel of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Now, three times, when, when were those three times? I think all three times were in the weeks and months after the event itself. This whole thing is, is complete by the time Barnabas shows up and says, hey, I need help in Antioch. All right. And, and Saul of Tarsus says, all right, I'm here to help. And he already has the thorn in the flesh before he joins uh, Barnabas and uh, goes to Antioch for that year that they spend there. All right, so I'm well content. And uh, shouldn't it be a shock to him because he would have had the vision of this in Arabia. Jesus said, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. And so that all the, all the stoning, all the... Uh, uh, imprisonments, all of the beating, all the scourging, all of the shipwrecks, 
all of the thorn in the flesh, all of the suffering that Paul engages in up to his own beheading. He had a, a complete vision of that in Arabia as part of a seminary training before, before he ever started his role as, a, as an apostle. So keep those things in mind as we read. Pencil it in if you'd like. Here in chapter 11. He left for Tarsus to look for Saul and found him. Found him and his thorn. Found him and uh, the thorn in the flesh to humble him. Which I think contained a disfigurement, a facial disfigurement. And Barnabas wasn't put off by that at all. Brought him to Antioch and for an entire year, an entire year, by the way, do you think that's a, a coincidence? Some of these other expressions, the three years, the 14 years, these other expressions um, have flexibility built in because in a Hebrew way of thinking, a part of a year is a year. And so, you know, a three-year thing could really be an entire year plus a couple months on either side. Not so here. It's an entire year. They met with the church and taught considerable numbers. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So they go from being called the way to being called little Christ's a diminutive of christos it's a diminutive if if jesus is the christ then we are just little christs all right and uh, and possibly the text doesn't say well who called them that it doesn't say it just says they were called so were they called that by themselves were they called that by their opponents were they called that by their friends were they called that by their enemies we don't know i'm kind of curious because uh I think a lot of times it's the enemies that give you a name and then you kind of say, yeah, I like that. You know, I'm a basket of deplorables. Okay, great. Send me the t-shirt. Okay. <laughs> or, uh, you know, you want to call me an infidel? Great. I'll wear that t-shirt too. Okay. Whatever it may be. So sometimes it's your opponents giving you your names. And, oh, well, it's not an insult to be named, to name the name of Christ. Not at all. Notice, though, it was not in Jerusalem under the first Pope Peter and all those other guys. It was in Antioch under Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Saul's still the second, uh, the, 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 the sidekick, okay? When we talk about the Lone Ranger and Tonto, okay? Batman and Robin. I mean, we know who's the, who's the, the main dude and who's the, who's the sidekick. And uh, there's no question, Barnabas is the main dude. Saul is the sidekick. Saul's the helper. Saul's the one that comes uh, alongside in Barnabas's ministry to provide assistance for Barnabas's ministry. Now it's going to flip. It's going to flip halfway through the first missionary journey. And uh, extraordinary things there that we may want to look into as well. All right, so we look at these already. Damascus to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Tarsus. We looked at those already. All right. Example three, considerable crowds called Christians. We've already read it here. About 41 AD, all right? 41 AD. Again, we've got some, uh, we've got some flexibility to work with. We're plugging in the dates. Um, we, we were pretty solid, though, on 50 and 51 and 52, and we're talking about his first arrival in Corinth and the appointment of, of Gallio as the proconsul of Corinth. And when Paul stands before the Bema, uh, there in Corinth, we, the dates there were locked in on. It, the things leading up to that, we might have slight flexibility to, to tweak a little bit here and there. I think the the, the uh, Acts 15 conference happened in 49. 
happened in 49 AD, right before the second missionary journey. And the, and the writing of Galatians in 48 or 49 AD, right before the Jerusalem conference, right before that second missionary journey. So 41 AD, we'll, we'll call it 41, maybe 42, um, for this year, uh, an entire year, that Barnabas and Saul were teaching the Word of God in, uh, in Antioch. Considerable crowds called Christians in Antioch. Now, this is not a missionary journey per se. We've seen a lot of traveling already, have we not? <laughs> right? And he's certainly made an awful lot of trips before he ever has his first missionary journey, <laughs> which is kind of a misnomer, and the second missionary journey, and the third missionary journey, and the fourth missionary journey, which is not really a fourth, which might be a fourth, depending on who you're reading. Some people call the, the sailing from uh, Jerusalem to Rome, they call that the fourth. It's not, it's the sailing to Rome. If he had a fourth, it was after he was released from Rome and wrote the, prison, uh, the, uh, the pastoral epistles. Maybe we should just dump the whole label missionary journey <laughs> and, and find better labels, see. But they've been in use for hundreds of years now and New Testament scholars, anyone teaching the book of Acts is going to use the missionary journeys as their outline because that's what we've been doing all this time. Um, anyway, in the narrative of Acts 11, 25 and 26, Luke records not a missionary journey, but the founding of a missionary logistical base Antioch becomes a headquarters. Antioch becomes a missionary logistical base from which multiple missionary journeys will subsequently be launched. Paul's first two of his first three missionary journeys are both launched out of Antioch. Plus, Barnabas has a missionary journey uh, after he splits from Paul. Barnabas uh, takes John Mark with him and they have a missionary journey that gets launched out of Antioch. And how many more, see, that aren't recorded? We don't know. Luke doesn't record the other apostles and their journeys and and the other things. But uh, as a base of operations, we have a pattern here in Antioch that's going to get moved to Ephesus. Paul will relocate. Ephesus will become his headquarters for the third missionary journey. Ephesus will become a missionary logistical base. And on Wednesday night, we'll come back to this and I'll describe a log base. Uh, in, In Saudi Arabia, we were stationed at Log Base Alpha. We created Log Base Alpha. Uh, as where the uh, MP company set up its headquarters. And a log base, a logistical base, is, a, is an encampment. It's a defensive uh, location. It's a place that you have, uh, you, you sleep and you recharge and, you, uh, and, and your, your headquarters is there. And from there, you send out supplies where they need to go. You send out MP patrols where they need to go. You do different things depending on what kind of log base it is. Well, here's a missionary logistical base. And uh, the role of Antioch in this, I think, is extraordinary. And I would love uh, Austin Bible Church, our training ministry, what we do here has been patterned off of this for some time now. And maybe I haven't articulated that in some classes, but in our training ministry and sending forth Pastor Cliff and Pastor Dan and, and evangelists to different things, we are a log base. We are a headquarters for training and for sending forth of missionaries and pastors and evangelists and, and believers, gifted and trained believers for their work of service. And uh, as much as we can imitate Antioch, we want to. We don't want to imitate Corinth. <laughs> we don't want to imitate the Galatians. But uh, Antioch's a good one. Ephesus is a good one. Philippi's a great one. Okay? And we'll see some of those as well. All right. Father, I thank you for this class. I thank you for a good start and looking forward to the classes that are on the way.
looking forward to the background necessary for us to uh, fully appreciate and uh, and uh, deal with uh, the coming prison epistles. So I thank you for this uh, this doctrine. I give you the praise and glory for our new year. Thank you for the completed year, and we're excited to see uh, more of your faithfulness uh, shine forth. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.